You have reached the Geek Elite. Good luck. I know what you're thinking. Did he fire six shots or only five? Well, to tell you the truth in all this excitement, I kind of lost track myself. But being this is a 44 Magnum, the most powerful handgun in the world, and would blow your head clean off, you've got to ask yourself one question. Do I feel lucky? Well, do you, punk? So earlier this week, Richard, I saw you tweeted something about the trial of the Chicago 7. Was that a I like the movie or a I didn't like the wow the movie wow? Oh <clears throat> no, yeah, that was a that was I liked it for sure. <laughs> yeah. I was like a wow that was uh well, I, I, there's there's content in this movie uh that of course is appalling. Mm-hmm. Right? Um but the movie itself is incredibly well done and uh, horrifically still relevant, um, Very. which is frightening. It's extremely <laughs> frightening. Uh, yes. Aaron Sorkin's The Trial of the Chicago 7 on Netflix is what we'll be talking about later today or later in this episode. But first, we're going to talk about a little bit of movie news, so to speak. Um, let's get something out of the way real quick. You know that uh, Zack Snyder's Justice League? Mm-hmm. Well, guess what? Joe Manganiello is coming back to be the Deathstroke. Okay. Weird. It, it may, no, it's not that weird. It makes sense. He They, they left it with a, 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 that him breaking, it, breaking him out at the end of Justice League. Was it the end of Justice League that he breaks him out? Breaks out Lex Luthor? Yeah. It was the end of that, end of that movie. So I'm sure he's going to get more to do in the in the this event series that they're calling it but then the other big news is that jared leto is coming in to play the joker in the jack Snyder's justice league (laughs) oh get out of here why uh i guess i guess um snyder just really liked what leto did with his joker in the suicide squad or i'm sorry just suicide squad so he wants to bring him back to Reprise the role in the Justice League. What what is it that he could possibly be doing as Joker in Justice League? No one knows at the moment, but he is filming scenes. Mm. I don't um I don't know. <clears throat> I thought I I I don't know. Jared Leto's very hit or miss for me. Same, uh, but I thought his Joker interpretation, and and it's not even all on him. I mean, uh, there's a good portion of that that's also on uh, the, the creative team and David Ayer and all that stuff. But th- that version of the Joker is just awful and does not need to get any more screen time. Like it, it. Let's just you know move on. Just you know bring a different Joker in. I bring in even um, Joaquin no, Phoenix no, at this point. Like. It. You Don't, said it. I yeah. hate you. <laughs> well, I'm sorry, but it's better than Joaquin. Or, uh, Joaquin's better than uh, Jared Leto in, in terms of the Joker. I'm sorry. It's it's just that representation of the Joker was completely atrocious. Well, do you think that he comes back with all the tattoos and the blinged out grill? I don't really care. I it. I just I don't want to see it like the and again maybe that's not fair to Jared Leto but I 
I don't know. I just was, there was nothing there for me that I was interested in seeing. And I'm certainly not interested in seeing it more. And I think if anything, I, I almost feel like that's going to really hurt because I, I don't, I know I'm not the only one I know from at least a, well, which again, I mean, you hang out with like-minded people. So maybe that's not a good barometer, but pretty much everyone I've talked to about that thought that that was by far one of the worst parts of that movie. So I just think it's 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 just not a good idea. It's you know what I mean? Like you're already trying to make a redemption for something that people were less than thrilled with. And so then doubling down and bringing something else in that left a bad taste in people's mouth is, uh, in my opinion, it's just not a good idea. So one of the things that I I, I think would be funny, I, I honestly don't want it either. So just I'll leave it at that. I don't think that. If he does come back, I I have a slight feeling that he doesn't come back with uh with all the tattoos and the blinged out grill because I think that was a David Ayer thing. But it'd be kind of funny in another big like finger to some of the fans uh, that if they ended up doing the theory that the Joker you saw in the Suicide Squad was Jason Todd at one point thing like jared leto joker shows up and he talks to batman he says something about you know being jason todd at one point or being a robin like i think that'd be comical it'd just be the next thing on top of the garbage fire that is that movie so yeah but this is the whole point you're you're being given what 70 or more million dollars to go back and try to write a ship that was drastically wronged and you know was was taking on massive amounts of water and sunk to the bottom of the sea. You're now trying to bring this back to the surface and restore it. And in my opinion, you know, throwing gasoline on a, on a fire that's monumentally out of control is not a good idea or a good way to, uh, to restore faith and, and, and all that sort of stuff, but whatever. I mean, it's totally his choice. Um, or it's the studio's choice. I don't know how much control he actually has or, or who's making all of these decisions. Oh, no, uh, it's definitely his choice at this point. Like they they're giving him all the money. He's he's like, I'm in here. You, I, you guys screwed it up the first time. You just let me do what I want to do this time. I mean, that's what we would hope. But the reality is, is we we just don't know that. And we and we never will. But I, I don't know. I, I personally think that's a really horrible decision. Um, maybe. Maybe I'm going to eat that later, but I highly doubt it. I just, I, I think that's a one and done and it's just time to move on. And I really do not think that that was a good call under any circumstance to even bring that into it or, or anything like just, I don't know, start fresh and, and, you know, try to rebuild. Don't, don't throw more gasoline on a fire. Like it's just not, I, I don't know. We'll see. I, I don't think it's a good idea. I don't think so either. So yeah, we'll definitely we'll definitely see what what ends up coming out of it. I had so. some hopes, but they're dying quickly. <laughs> uh, so one of the movies movie franchises that we do like, and not because it's a good movie, just because we just like it for what it is—a terrible action film. The Fast and the Furious franchise has—they have said officially that they're coming to an end after. 10 and 11 so 9 has still yet to come out it got pushed back a year due to coronavirus 
but they are going to do a two-part finale with 10 and 11. My goodness gracious, what the heck? Like, what else is there to do? Aren't they already going to space? I mean, I think that's what they said 10 is going to be. Like, it's going. It's definitely going to have some going to space stuff, but oh. I don't... Time travel, maybe? That's like, the only thing they got left? Maybe he goes so... He goes so fast that he goes back in time. Dominic Toretto goes back in time and he stops his dad from beating that guy to death with a crowbar or with a, yeah, it was a, was a, no, a tire iron. So, well, he, he did that. That was Toretto. Well, he, that did that. he did that. Yeah. yeah. So maybe he stops himself from doing that. Well, I mean, I think if you go back, I think you just stop your dad from driving the car and dying. I mean, that's, that's what derailed everything. So, I mean, I think you go back and you just say, dad, you don't do it. Or you flatten the tires or something, or you take like components out of the engine or something, you know, or, Ooh, go ahead. Or he is his dad. Well, that's, I was going to say, what if he was actually, he, his time travel is what caused the accident. Like he oh. time traveled his car into the dad's car. <laughs> but I think he said his dad hits the wall, but still like, I'm just saying like, you know, if you really want to go full time loop and paradox, like let's go big. And then he's traveling so fast through time that Jared Leto as the Joker shows up and <laughs> ruins another franchise. Uh, yeah. Uh, can you think of another franchise where, where this many films happened with the same cast? Mm. Cause like, I can think of like James Bond, but that's not the same cast over and over. Right. Yeah. They, they actually changed James Bond quite a bit. Um, yeah. which is like what, like 24 movies now? I think No Time to Die is 24. Is it 24 yeah. or 25? I'm not sure. I know they're, I know they're at least, you know, in the, in the low twenties, but still, yeah, that's crazy. Uh, no, I, I, yeah, I'm hard pressed to think of, um, well, first off, not, not just with the same cast. I mean, I'm, it's, you're kind of hard up to even think of any franchise that even has 10 or 11, you know, continuations. Like you got like, you got like the Jason movies, the Friday the 13s. Yeah, but I mean, like, I I don't know. Yes, you do have those, but I have a harder time counting those, in all honesty. But, I mean, you're not wrong, but I don't know why. To me, those just don't really apply, like, the same. I Maybe they should. Like, maybe that's some snobberish, uh, <laughs> you know, film elitism. Like, I, I just... Mean- but you, you don't you're not keeping the same actors in any of that and they're not playing the same roles. I mean, I think maybe uh, the gentleman who played Freddie or not Freddie uh, Jason and like the later ones is the same guy. But other than that, it's not you don't really have any returning cast members. No. Yeah, I, I I can't really think of too many. I mean, I know even in like Halloween, like Jamie Lee Curtis is in a number of them. Um, That's true. But no, but, but even then, I mean, yeah, like, okay. So you have what Jason, maybe Freddy Krueger. So, I mean, like, obviously there's a trend that it's a little bit more, um, common in horror films, but even outside of that though, I mean, like, can you think of a lot of franchises that have 11 movies? No, I can't. I was thinking, I don't, I I don't know how many of those bring it on movies they did or how many of those step up movies they did but i know they did a lot but i still don't think it got up to double digits well right and then there's like you know the american pie things but again like you know does that really count like 
Yeah, I don't think. I mean, because those are like American Pie presents, kind right? Of, kind of like National Lampoon. Yeah. Uh, like obviously, in this scenario, then that would mean like Hobbs and Shaw doesn't count because that's Fast and the Furious presents. But straight up Fast and the Furious with either Paul Walker or uh, Vin Diesel in it, that's going to be eleven movies. So then Tokyo Drift just barely makes that cut because Toretto yeah. shows up at the very end and is exactly. like, can I race the DK? And they're all like, oh, she, oh my God. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it it only, I can't think of another movie that's done. And, and not only that, made more money every time they put something out. Like, yeah. <laughs> that's the crazier part too, right? It definitely, I mean, like, not only that, they became less and less and less realistic and made more and more and more money. <laughs> All you had to do is throw in classic cars and explosions. Here's here's how you do it, folks. You want an 11-picture deal. You make a movie about Corona and family. <laughs> That's it. That's the recipe. Just just make sure it's the beer Corona. Like yes. yep, Corona, yeah, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. No one wants to see that right now. No. <laughs> uh, okay, going back over to superhero. Well, I mean, we don't really leave superheroes when you're talking about Fast and the Furious. It's just their superpower is cars. So, <laughs> right, that's so weird. Going back over to Batman, then I guess to f- to finish up the Batman, the one filming with um, uh, Robert, Robert Pattinson. Pattinson. Yeah. Matt Reeves mm-hmm. movie, they are going to use the same technology the Mandalorian use yep. of their virtual production. Yep. So, what do you think of that? So, do you do you understand what it is? Can you explain it to people real quick that might not? Well, I don't know exactly what tools they're using, but yeah, virtual production within the last few years, um, mostly because of like LED light volumes and things like that, have have come a a very long way, and essentially. Um, you know, kind of what you're doing is you're using a screen. Um, there's typically some 3D artists and things like that that are working. Um, I think a lot of times in like virtual reality headsets and things like that. And so they're kind of like actually manufacturing virtual sets that are being displayed behind the actors. And so uh, kind of a simplified way of thinking about it is like they're they're green screening like kind of in real time but like without a green screen, like, so they're not really doing the chroma key, but like, it's that same kind of like thought process that you would have this like artificial background that would normally be replaced. Well, now they're actually just putting that background there. Um, there's a, a cinematographer by, he actually used to run like a YouTube uh, channel and like an Instagram thing called cinematography database, but his name was Matt workman. And, um, he is the one that I have seen kind of I, granted there's a number of people that are doing this, but from just my experience, like he's the one that I've seen that's really been uh, at the forefront of this. And they were actually filming a, like a little video with like a motorcycle. And so the power of it becomes that these led light volumes can not only be leveraged to create or to display uh, a fake background behind the actor, they're also emitting light. So you can actually use them to also light the actor. Um, And you can change just about anything on it because it's virtual. So, I mean, like you can change the time of day, you know, you can make it cloudy, you can add weather effects, um, you know, all these sorts of things. And so 
it is a really powerful tool um and it's i think it's really we're we're walking down a path where this is going going to become more and more common because it's just a lot more powerful than if you had to build sets for all of these things because you could essentially just build a set or whatever you needed in you know like a vr type of program or you know some sort of graphic design program put it onto these backgrounds and then you have a set that can be changed on the fly as needed so it is a pretty powerful tool again that's just one element i don't know exactly what they are utilizing i'm sure there's other things uh that are out there as well but i that's kind of the more dominant one that i've i've seen talked about a lot l- more recently at least so uh, a little expert excerpt from this uh article in the hollywood reporter says for the for season one of the mandalorian industrial light magic worked with favreau to configure his system using an led wall driven uh yeah led wall driven by the mm-hmm. unreal unreal real-time game engine yep here this year the vf vfx company launched stagecraft a virtual production unit built around the mandalorian technique so it looks like they will be using uh, the batman will be using this um uh, system to do uh, at least a few scenes yeah and I, I you know again i with everything that's going on with the pandemic and you know the limited spaces for sound stages and things like that once the floodgates to production uh, production opens back up entirely um yeah i think we're going to start seeing more and more and more of this because again it it is a very powerful uh, powerful technique um from all the things that i've seen of it it, it is hard to distinguish uh that it's like a virtual environment depending upon how it's executed of course but um it's a very convincing background um it's a lot like faster process than than what you would typically get out of you know maybe doing like an entire green screen setup and then having someone go back and kind of build it all out and do all the visual effects and post because you're kind of getting that in the moment and you're having a lot more control over that virtual environment and and all of those sorts of things so um you know i really think this is going to become a a major uh, game changer for the industry and i think it has to because otherwise you know i there's a lot of productions that are just going to be bottlenecked because of the lack of resources so you know with this you can have a warehouse or just about any you know pretty large open space throw these you know light volumes and you're off to the races you know and it's just and and the fact that you can also double it double duty with it to where you know you can also light the actors in a very convincing way or here's the other side of the equation if for any reason you do need a green screen you just make those leds that you need green green and then you have that already built into uh your shots so uh, yeah, I think we're going to see more of this. I'm not surprised by this uh, at all, really. I, and I think it's kind of great to see that uh, technology might be able to help move us back into a faster uh, production timeline for a lot of these projects. Yeah. Uh, speaking of the Mandalorian, like they, I believe, said they're going to start production on season three before the end of this year. And wow. the re- one of the reasons they can do that is because of this system it it kind of it well it very much helps in keeping covid uh uh symptoms down or cases down i mean i don't quite understand how but i would assume that because of how much is dictated by by these screens they can better control the environment and who needs to be there and uh cleaning everything 
Yeah, and and I mean, I th- you know, I think the other side of that equation too is, I mean, if you're ever shooting on location, there's only so much that you know traditionally you can kind of control. Um, it'll certainly lower cost in some respects, uh, and so you know that allows you to kind of maybe slow down a little bit, take a little bit more time, and you know really follow through with the the guidelines and the safety things that you have to do. So yeah, I mean, I could see that working as well. Um, I know we talked, so for everyone listening, they obviously don't necessarily know this, but we yesterday recorded a podcast, uh, for the Patreon subscribers. And, uh, one of the things that, that kind of came up with, as we were talking about, um, Oat Studios, which is Neil Bloomcamp or Blumcamp. And, um, he's another person that if you go and like, there's a lot of behind the scenes things that they've uh, kind of put out there on how they're making a a lot of the short films and things that Oats studio has been working on. So if you are someone that's really interested in like, kind of like virtual production and, you know, kind of where uh, movies and things like that could potentially be going, I would definitely check out uh, Oats studios, watch a lot of the behind the scenes stuff. And then if you're a little bit more interested in like the kind of like the led light volumes and things like that for virtual production, uh, I would also check out like Matt Workman stuff. Uh, it used to be under cinematography data uh, database, but you might be able to find it there. But if you look either one of those up, uh, you'll find some really, really interesting and really cool kind of like behind the scenes stuff. So just a fun little tidbit for, for everyone else that's listening. If you want to check that stuff out. Very cool. All right, uh, Richard, did you happen to back in April or since then pick up the the streaming app platform app uh, Quibi? No, no, that's like the micro episodes, right? Yeah, everything was uh, supposed to be five to eight minutes long. Every episode was supposed to be five to eight minutes long, and you'd you'd watch it in chunks and stuff like that. Um, well. You are not alone. A lot of people did not pick up Quibi, and <laughs> it's now being shut down. They, uh, Katzenberg and Whitman, the CEOs of, or the founders or the creators of it, are going to shut it down. They're winding everything down. It's it's just not in the cards to work. And I mean, I would say that it's all it's. I mean, part of it is is coronavirus because when they decided to launch in April, like we were just at the beginning or somewhat at the beginning of uh, the quarantine. And the idea that this app only works on your phone, you can't get it on a, a smart TV or on uh, the computer desktop or your gaming system, like only on your phone or tablet. Cause it was most, the whole idea is supposed to be, it's, it's for the person on the go. Like if you're on the bus or you're on the, the subway, you can want you have only seven minutes to watch something. A quick bite is what Quibi stood for. Uh, you would watch seven minutes and then you'd be on to your next thing. And then the next day, you, you when you're on your commute again, you could also watch another seven minutes while you're waiting in line for your coffee kind of thing. Well, at the time, no one's going anywhere because everybody was quarantined. And, you know, most people, I, I don't know. I guess there are a lot of people that like to watch things on their phones and their tablets. I don't. It just seems to, like a lot of things are filmed dark and I can't see anything on my phone, especially if I'm in the sun. So I like watching things on my big screen TV and uh, you can't do that unless I guess you can, you can cast it up there kind of thing. But uh, still it just did not work out. 
I think another big problem of it, because like I watched a lot of the movies on there. Uh, a lot of the shows I didn't care for because I got the the free what three month trial when it when they when it came out. Mm-hmm. Um, I I watched a lot of the movies and I watched a lot of the shows. I didn't care for the shows. The movies all had great like beginnings, but the problem with only being able to watch things at seven minutes at a time, you don't get a proper ending because you have to end it in seven minutes, and it it didn't work out like the the most dangerous game with Liam Hemsworth and. Uh, Christoph Waltz. Great movie. I thought it was really good. The ending just blew because you kind of have to wrap up everything in seven minutes. And I don't know. I feel like a proper ending in a action thriller movie, you're going to need at least 30 minutes. I mean, I, I don't know. I, I To me, that, that sounds more like a situation of them being like, well, everything has to end in like a cliffhanger and leaving you wanting more so that you watch another Quibi thing. And when you look at micro shorts specifically, that's the worst thing you can do. A micro short, just like every other film, should have a strong beginning, middle, end, and end. Uh, and it should stand on its own. That Everything should. Every story should do that. Um, you know, if you make a short film uh, that really is the opening of a feature, that's not a short film. That, that's that's a proof of concept that's an opening to a feature it's not it's not a sustained thing and so yeah I, I i i would have to disagree with you i think action things can have great endings but they have to be thought of it out, up front like it has to be executed in a thing of knowing like we have to have a strong beginning middle and an end but with this they also need people to kind of have that that, that moment of like oh i want more but then it's like, you're not going to get more. You're going to get another Quibi, but it's going to be different. So you're not getting a continuation of that story. And I think that's another, number one, disjointed thing. Number two, you're absolutely right. The pandemic hit. People aren't going, you know, anywhere. You know, most of people are at, at stay-at-home orders and things like that. So, um, you know, it's not surprising that dropped off. I mean, we saw podcast numbers drop off because people weren't listening in their cars or at the gym anymore because those things were not as heavily utilized. So a lot of major podcasts and even smaller podcasts saw pretty substantial drops in their numbers. I think the other thing, too, that's kind of maybe a little short-sighted on their end is that, like, there are so many different things competing for your entertainment free time now. And to come out with a platform that oddly is going to try to kind of sort of compete with YouTube, uh, but like on a higher production quality scale and maybe more money invested into each of these shorter projects... I just don't think that's a good viable option. I think people are already so integrated into their, you know, routines of entertainment that you're going to have a very hard time kind of trying to take something away from stuff like YouTube, Twitch, um, you know, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, you know, all of these other platforms that are there, even like little mobile games and stuff like that. I mean, like the mobile game market has completely exploded over the last like five to 10 years. So I just also feel like, yeah, the timing probably wasn't great. But I mean, honestly, the concept, like you said, probably just really wasn't that strong to start with because you're right. I mean, I would say, yes, a lot of people do watch content and stuff like that on their phone, but I mean, if you're going to sit down and watch something that's a movie, you know, 
yeah, you're you're probably going to be a little bit more inclined to a want a proper movie and not just a quick little bite of something that could be a larger film. Like I, most people, I think, are like you in the same thought process that they want a good, strong beginning, middle, and an end, not here's a concept of something you're starting to buy into it and enjoy it. Oh, it's over. Here's the quibby little thing. And you get to watch another quirky little video. And you're like, Oh, I don't care about that video. I want to watch more of this, you know, like we're really in this like cultural mindset of binging and like consume and consume and consume. And if they're offering you like little micro fragment bites and none of those things really kind of like mesh well together. Yeah, most people probably aren't going to really care that much. So let me just clarify. The movie that I was talking about is actually like an hour and a half long. They just gave it to you in seven minute segments. And the, the problem was when you got to the last segment, which would be the ending, it was only seven minutes long. Oh, okay. Yeah, that but still I I that sounds even worse to me yeah. because when I sit down to watch a movie, the last thing I want to do is have multiple interruptions or or endings every 7 minutes. Like again, I I think it's just more of an execution of the idea combined you're right. I think those other factors play a role too. Like obviously the pandemic's not going to help, but I also think there's just an overwhelming amount of content that's competing for people's entertainment time. And like, if you're going to bring something out there like that, I mean, it has to be on a whole nother level. And, and again, movies aren't really, I don't know, seven minutes and then you get another seven minutes and then an, it like, I, I don't know. To me, that just does not sound like a recipe for something to, to work well, but I mean, who knows, maybe in another time it will, but it, it didn't apparently work too well this time. No, not, not this time. Uh, okay. Let me ask you this. In the world of Hollywood remakes, reboots, uh, reimaginings that we're getting, do you prefer when, or do you not care for either one, but do you prefer when a movie, an older movie gets made into a TV series or an older TV series gets made into a movie? Ooh, that's a tough question. I, I, personally, I think it really depends a lot on, you know, the content that exists uh, within the original source material, right? Because, you know, let's be honest, sometimes we have shows that go on for way too long and probably could do just fine as a concept executed in, you know, an hour and a half to two hours, right? And then by proxy, we also have movies that that suffer from that same thing where it's, you know, kind of the reverse. And, you know, they should need they do need more time to really set up everything they're trying to do. And they could benefit from uh, moving into, you know, a longer form of storytelling such as a series. And, yeah, I mean, I got to be honest, I, I remember when they announced Cobra Kai, I thought that was the absolute worst idea ever. I was like, this is absolutely silly. Like, why are we doing this? Like this movie kind of gave us everything we needed to know about this, this world and everything that was happening. And then, you know, I think Cobra Kai moved from YouTube onto Netflix or whatever. And I actually sat down and watched it. And I was like, wow, this is actually really good and I'm enjoying it and I didn't think that I needed this, but I was wrong and it's great. And so 
I think a lot of that just depends on what the source material from the original content is and how well it would lend itself to one or the other, right? Like, I think that has more of an assessment on its potential to be uh, of, of, you know, to be good versus being complete crap show, you know? So I bring it up because there was recently announced that we're going to be getting, or at least someone is working on a uh, Smoking the Bandit TV show. Hmm. Um, there was another one, but then I mean, the- they did have multiple Smoking the Bandit films. Um, three. Yeah, so I mean, there, there, there is that. I mean, I don't know. For me, I kind of don't necessarily want to see it because it's like, to me, those movies were great with like Burt Reynolds and back in the day. And again, I mean, I'm probably going to be wrong because I said the same thing about Cobra Kai and then I really liked it. So, I mean, I'm willing to give it a chance. But I mean, I'm also not like, you know, if you were to sit down and have a conversation with me and be like, what would you like to see be remade as a show? I would never have said Smoking the Bandit. Like that's that would have never even been on my radar. It also has to take place in that time period, right? Because there's no... There's not a lot of, you know, uh, booze running anymore. I mean, you would think that, but then, I mean, who knows? Like, who knows how they, they change the, the story or what time period? I mean, like, if the Fast and the Furious can make 11 movies about cars that are basically superheroes and, not, and don't transform into, you know, anthropomorphized, uh, you Giant. know. Giant robots, then I mean, I think you can stretch it and be like, in the year 2021, like, you know, prohibition started again. Like, I mean, I, you know, I'm sure there's something they could do if they really wanted to modernize it. That's fair. It uh, seems weird that they would want to, but maybe. <laughs> and the other one that, that I was going to bring up is that we are getting a Willow TV series on uh, Disney Plus, which. The director of Crazy Rich Asians is going to direct the first episode, the pilot episode. Wow. Yeah. So I believe that one is supposed to be more of a sequel series than it is a um, uh, like reboot, though. Hmm. How do you feel about that? Well, I do love me some Willow. Uh, it's It's been a long it's been a long time since I've seen the movie, but um yeah, I mean, I like it. I, I'm curious, at the very least, to see where it goes. Again, that's one where you say that, and I'm like, okay, I think there's a greater potential for that to go somewhere than Smokey and the Bandit. You know what I mean? Like, I could very well be wrong. That doesn't mean that that's at all what's going to happen. But to me, when you just think about the material... I do think Willow lends itself a little better to go into a, a full blown like series or mini series or limited series, whatever, uh, over Smokey and the Bandit. That seems strange to me, you know. Uh, yeah, the other one I was think I was going to bring up was uh, Flashdance. That's also getting a series, and then it was also recently announced that Tim Burton will be making a new adam's family tv series so a tv show that went to become movies that is now becoming tv Mm. (laughs) well that's back to you know full circle i mean that's that's kind of going all the way around Uh, and again that one i think again makes sense because like you said it's it's seen both and obviously it did okay in both of those things flash dance i don't know uh (laughs) again i it seems weird that that would need to be told over the course of multiple, multiple hours. Uh, but 
here is the the situation that we that I think we find ourselves in is you know Netflix has created this binge monster. People are consuming longer and longer form story now more than ever, which is again I think another reason why the idea of Quibi is not really that great of an idea because people are moving more and more into these longer uh, forms of story. The upside to that, really, though, is uh, TV kind of traditionally a long time ago or a good while back used to be almost looked at as like subpar to film. Like there was a lot of film actors that was like, oh, no, I don't go on television. I am a film star. (laughs) And now it's almost like all those people are like, oh, no, give me the TV show because that's a lot of cheddar in my pantry, if you know what I'm saying. You know what I mean? So you have the and not only that, you know, again, because of Netflix and, and you know, even HBO, really, because HBO is kind of the first one that was really pushing like strongly into original programs, like really high end content. You know, um, that's really where we find ourselves. The the money aspect that goes into it, the production value that goes into it is at least it just at least feels this way to me that it's so much more grandiose now and it's taken so much more serious uh than it used to be you know i mean when you have like the battle of the bastards scene that cost 10 million dollars for just that sequence that's a lot of money into a tv show that would have not ever happened like 20 10 15 years ago you know what i mean like but now you have all of these shows that are getting, you know, like House of Cards, $10 million for an episode. You know, you're seeing like a huge amount of money put into um, like the morning show and things like that for Apple and Amazon. So, again, we do find ourselves in a situation where it's it's almost this reverse where, you know, a lot of these films, if they were to get remade, would in in film terms have smaller budgets. But in the TV world, they can end up with these pretty large uh, illustrious budgets that can really help them to make these kind of, you know, really high end productions. And, and so it's just fascinating how that's kind of shifted. Yeah, no, I, I think that's, I think you're, you're hitting it right on the head. I think that the, the divide between being a TV actor and a movie actor is, is much less now. Like, obviously there's, it, there's like the network t- television stuff that you know certain movie stars probably st- wouldn't want to do, but when you're talking about a streaming site or or HBO or something like that, it's definitely uh, uh, where a lot of the prestige and money is at now. Oh yeah, I mean, I, I think you know, it's not like I would ever expect to see like Daniel Day Lewis on like a PBS special. You know what I mean? Like, I, I there's still a lot of granted he's retired from acting in general, but I, he was just the first one that popped, and I don't even know that he's like. I'm not saying he's like arrogant or pompous about it. I'm just saying like, you're right. There are certain uh, networks and things like that, that you would not expect to have kind of like those mega stars in, in their, their shows. You know, it, it would absolutely be more of like Apple, Amazon, Netflix. I would, and HBO, I would guess. Right. Or Disney, Disney plus, of course, Disney's pretty mega conglomerate. Right. Okay. Let's get into talking about the movie that we're here to talk about. Netflix is the trial of the Chicago seven written and directed by Aaron Sorkin. So this is the second time that he's directed something. Uh, did you watch Molly's game, which was his first direction? Uh, 
I'm I'm trying to recall if I watched that or not. I did. I loved that movie. That's the one That's where Jessica Chastain, right? Yeah, she's uh she runs a illegal poker game with a lot of celebrities and uh movie stars and stuff like that we're, we're playing in and like one of the characters is portrayed by Michael Sarah and I guess that character is supposed to be a analog for Tobey Maguire is what I understand. Hmm. That's interesting. It's I I enjoyed the movie a lot. I thought it was I thought it was great. It also has a uh, Idris Elba in it. He plays uh Jessica Chastain's lawyer. So nice. Yeah, a chance. Check that check that movie out. But Trial yeah. Chicago Seven. Uh, I mean, it's got all the the Sorkin stuff in it, right? It's got all the dialogue. It's got all the the quick quips and the uh, uh, you know very intelligent, super intelligent uh, characters that you know all of them are hilarious and know how to talk to each other and know how to get one over on each other, kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I mean, I honestly did not know that Aaron Sorkin had anything to do with this when I started watching it. But really quickly, I was like, what? I was like, this is so weird. Like, I was like, who, who like sat down and watched Aaron Sorkin's masterclass like five million times and then made an Aaron Sorkin movie without Aaron Sorkin? And then I get to the end of the movie and it's like directed by, directed and written by Aaron Sorkin. I'm like, oh, yeah, that okay. So it was him this whole time, and it wasn't someone who just magically uh, osmosed all of his skill sets into their own uh, vernacular. But it it definitely has a lot of those those trademark things that I believe people would come to expect from Sorkin. And you know, again, if you're if you're someone who maybe doesn't know his work as well, you know, he has a very long history of writing very political uh, shows. And so it it shouldn't come as a surprise that this was, you know, his movie. No, it really shouldn't. Like once you, once you if you didn't figure it out, once you see it, you like, oh, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I just want to say that this cast, this cast was unbelievable for me. Like I in particular am not a Sasha Baron Cohen fan. Really? Never. No, not really. Uh, how come? I don't know. I just don't particularly like his one. I don't particularly like his form of comedy and two, like his acting. I haven't, I mean, obviously it's, it takes a lot of talent to be, Ollie G in one one scene, Bruno in another scene, and then Borat in yet a third scene. But I just don't care for it. I don't care for his whole shtick in most in most of the things I see him. And like even in Les Mis, like I, I didn't really separate myself uh, or feel like he separates himself from from the part. But this, oh, what I, about what about Hugo? Hugo. You know, Hugo still is good, but not not because of him. Like his performance in that still very much uh, a Sasha Baron Cohen to me. Okay, so do do you feel it's it's like you know? Do you feel like it's because he seems like the same character in all of these things, or do you, like because I always feel like he's kind of a chameleon. I I definitely don't think he's a chameleon, but I also don't think he's the same character. I just feel like he puts the same energy into everything, if that makes mm. sense. It does. Did you watch The Spy? Uh, the series that he did, I believe, for Amazon, or was it Netflix, maybe? I think it was... 
Was it Netflix? No. It was I, Netflix. It was Netflix, I think. I think the last thing I saw with him in this or before this was the the Brothers Grimm or Grimly? The Brothers Grimly, the one with yeah, him and Mark Strong. Yeah, Mark Strong, yeah. I think I really think you should you should watch The Spy. I, I he's a very his energy in that and his his uh, acting and characterizations are a lot closer to what you get in the Chicago Seven. I think you would I think you would enjoy that from him. Okay, I will do that because I like I said I I thoroughly enjoyed his performance in this. Um, I I love that halfway through the movie I came to because I am not the biggest history person like i know there are certain things i know they're the big things and and stuff you know information that i know uh but like i did not know about the character he's playing abby hoffman and it's about halfway through the movie when i was like oh this is the same guy that's in the scene in forrest gump with mm-hmm. the washington monument or yeah whatever that is and you know he's, he keeps cursing and forrest is like that guy just cursed all the time uh like i just i that's that that was me but yes eddie redmayne uh john carroll lynch like i loved his character yaya abdul manteen mark rylance joseph gordon levitt like i would say joseph gordon levitt probably has the least to do in this movie of everybody but yet still gives a great performance and then there's frank lagella like i know that everybody doesn't like him in this but I think that's, I mean, that's obviously exactly what he's going for. And I thought it was great. Yeah. And, you know, it's really funny because um, I, I, I don't know. Did, had you, okay. Had you seen a trailer or anything for this before you watched it? Like, did you know anything about it? I knew what it was about. Right. And I know, I think I saw parts of the trailer, but I already knew that because it was Aaron Sorkin, I was going to watch it. So I never really like paid attention to the trailer, if that makes sense. No, it totally does. And I was just going to say, you know, for for me, like, you know, I, I don't know. It's weird because, like, I love film and I'm involved in it. But then in other ways, like, I've I've become so disconnected from it. And then when you have, like, these streaming platforms, it, it they don't, you know, they almost always have a built-in audience now because of they, they have a subscriber base and they can push these things on their platforms. So they don't really have to rely on kind of that more traditional marketing that you would you know, typically see of a movie. So I feel like there's all these movies like this that, that come out and then you're like, Oh, okay, let's, we're going to watch it. And then you watch it and you're like, Holy cow. Like I had no idea. And that's what I found myself doing with this is I was like, the cast started like, you know, being shown on screen. And I was like, this person's in this, this person's in this. Holy cow. That, that person's in here too. Like it was literally just this giant avalanche of continued, like, Oh my gosh, like how is this person in this movie? And then the whole time, you know, I'm thinking the whole thing about Aaron Sorkin, not realizing it's his movie, which would have instantly made more sense that these people were in it. But I'm just going like, how in the heck did they get all of these phenomenal, phenomenal actors into like one ensemble cast and yet none of them upstage each other. Like they all like work so copacetically and like, there's just such a, a, like a balanced, uh, like proportionate, uh, you know, acting skill set from everyone. Like it's crazy. I mean, I, I would have to say like, I have to say that uh, a little bit of behind the scenes stuff for Geekly Media. 
I'm the one that has to do all like the posting of trailers and stuff like that. So I I kind of sk- I go through movie news like all day every day just so that I have stuff to post on our uh our social medias about the movie industry and what's coming out and stuff like that. So Yeah. I get to see uh, a lot of trailers or at least know of a lot of trailers and a lot of the stuff that's going to come out on these streaming sites. But if I hadn't already been doing that, I'm probably being the same boat as you. Like I wouldn't know half of the new stuff that's coming out on these uh, streaming platforms because you're right. Like unless more than likely you already, they already have a built in fan base, you know, whoever, if you, if you're a big fan of, of certain stuff on Netflix, you're probably going to be following Netflix, like kind of thing. Like you're going to be seeing these stuff, the, uh, the this marketing, and they don't need to go further than what is already being done on their own platform, so to speak. Like, like mm-hmm. if you're watching something on Amazon Prime, right before your thing starts on Amazon Prime, you're going to see a advertisement for something that's going to be on Amazon Prime, right? Mm-hmm. So it. I, I get what you're saying, and, and it totally makes sense. Now, well, and, and do you, sorry, do you always see the top tens? Like when I mean, you, it says like top ten in the U.S. Do you do you see that kind of pop up all the time? I mean, yeah, it, it's there on my Netflix, but I don't honestly, I don't ever pay attention to it because when I open up my Netflix, I already have a destination that I'm going to. Like I, I rarely do the whole search thing anymore. Well, and that and that totally makes sense. And and, I, and again, I think you're more of maybe the rarity, right? Because again, like you said, you obviously have a reason to be a little bit more. But here's my thing, and I, this is total conspiracy theory, all that sort of stuff. This is not one. I, I have no information if this is true or not. I I am starting to heavily suspect that those are not actually the the top ten most things watched on Netflix. I think they are using their statistical data to put like things that would more like that you would be more likely to watch in those positions on your account. I, I, I have a weird suspicion of that. I don't know that that's true. It's complete like conspiracy theory nonsense, but I just like what a brilliant marketing tactic to be like, well, this person watches basically all the Adam Sandler movies. So uh, what was the Adam one that came out? Hubie, Hubie or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, I'm pretty sure they were like on a bunch of people somewhere in the, in the in the globe. They were like number one in the world, number one in New Guinea, number one in New Zealand. You know what I mean? Like I'm I I don't know. I feel like that's what's going on with that, but maybe I'm wrong. <laughs> no, I think you're you're absolutely right. I think they I I think they have come out and said that the, the top ten is still tailored towards you for your the algorithm. You know that. Uh, pertains to you like and 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 of course that's it's kind of the the how the snake eats its tail right like it's going to suggest things to you because it knows what you like to watch and then as it suggests is it suggests their more popular thing or it suggests their their thing that they want put out there so then as people seeing that this is suggested to them they watch it and thus it becomes the most watched thing like it just works in itself in a circle which is fine it's their product they're gonna they do it the way that they want, like, and they never give out numbers, so it's not a complete, like, uh, infactual thing. Yeah, I, I'm not saying that I I think there's necessarily anything wrong with it. Like, again, you're absolutely right. It's their platform; they can do whatever they want. And I mean, 
you know, if they just stop looking at certain numbers and looked at those numbers, you, yeah, it could always be number one of whatever movie you want, you know, like, or again, there could be some super hidden subtext. It's like, these would be the one through 10 for you in the United States. But I still think that's pretty, uh, regardless of whether how, if that actually is how it works or not, I do think that's still a pretty ingenious tactic for, you know, the average Netflixer that's probably just going to fire it up, not look further down than that first row. And it's like, oh, look at this. Like these movies are all top 10. Boop. I'm watching it. You know, so I, I think that's pretty smart. So uh, I told you what my favorite uh, performances were. What did, what were yours? Oh, man. Um, you know, it's so crazy because, again, I, I was just so constantly, constantly, constantly blown away by just who was in this. Um, I love Joseph Gordon-Levitt, and I think he was probably the best casting choice they could have done to play Richard Schultz because that is a character that you feel like you deeply want to hate because – they're not necessarily having the moral compass to stand up and be like, this is atrociously wrong. But he's also skating on this weird thing of where he is battling and trying to also be somewhat more ethical than these other people that basically have no ethics. And so I, th I think that was a great casting choice. Cause I really think if you would have picked anyone else that had any sort of ounce of unlikability, it would have been very easy to just be like, no, this guy's a complete piece of crap and there's no, you know, gray zone for that. Um, so I thought that was a phenomenal one. But again, yeah, everyone in this um, just does so fantastic. And the whole uh, sequence that happened with, um, is it Mateen, uh, who played Bobby Seal? Yep. Like, oh my gosh, when he gets dragged out of the courtroom and bound and gagged and then brought back in and you're like, there is no way that that happened inside of a United States court. But then someone told me, if you look it up, that actually did happen. And you're just like, this is disgusting. And and that's one, one billionth of the horrible, disgusting things that happen that you're like, Oh my God, like this cannot be happening in a courtroom. Like th this is like these people should be disbarred. Like this, this is completely insane. Like it shouldn't be happening. And then it gives you this huge existential crisis because you realize that our entire justice system is this way. Like it really can still happen. And it's, it's horrifying. It's so horrifying. So one of the, infactual things if that's a word uh about inaccurate? that huh inaccurate sure inaccurate works also uh it because that did actually happen but it yeah. happened over the course of days so he had to sit in court bound and gagged for days not not the mere minutes that was shown in the movie where then joseph gordon levitt's character walks up and says hey we need to let him go because yeah, this isn't right. Or yeah. more actually, as Mark Ryland's character says, yeah, because now he's getting, you know, sympathy because you did this to him in the middle of a courtroom and he's going to lose his case kind of thing. With, and again, I don't know if this is how it went down in the real world, but in the movie, if you look to the back of the gallery, it's all journalists. Yeah. Like, what are you doing? You crazy old bastard of the judge. Like, how can, what? Like, what? 
what law school would you ever yeah how could you be a judge and be like yes this this is going to go over well like what crazy or even when they get to the scene where they're bringing in um michael keaton's U, uh, uh, US, uh attorney, attorney general yeah like he clears out the jury but he doesn't clear out the the courtroom so right journalists in there hearing this testimony so they're gonna go report it but yeah, that's that was exactly what i thought too they're gonna be like well the jury was told to leave the room and this guy gave all the stuff that said the chicago pd was responsible for the riot and like and then the jury still found him guilty you know it's like what how i don't know it's just crazy it's <laughs> and again i don't know how much of this is accurate or not but even in the context of the film it's it just really makes you sick to your stomach and you feel uh, so incredibly helpless like watching this unfold and in 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 you know in front of you like it's it's really terrifying and then there's an, another huge example of systemic racism in our court system in this movie whereas uh the john carroll's character um uh, the the man who is a uh david dellinger yeah yes david dellinger john carroll lynch's character he he does worse than what uh bobby seal does yep. and he actually hits the, the bailiff and they don't treat nearly treat him as bad as they did bobby seal oh not not even at all yeah i mean not not even a little bit yeah uh, the other thing is, is i agree with you like with sasha baron cohen and, and even eddie redmayne uh when they get kind of later on into the movie and they're talking about you know uh, wanting to put uh, Tom Hayden on the stand and there's kind of that whole like fallout moment between him and, and Abby Hoffman. And then, you know, um, William, uh, Cus- what is it? Kunstler? Uh is it, that's uh, Mark Rylan's character name, right? Yes. Okay. Yeah. When he kind of like brings in the recording of Tom Hayden saying, you know, like we're going to let the blood flow through the streets or through the city. And there's that whole like exchange and then there's like that aha moment where Sasha Baron Cohen is like, oh my gosh, like I get it because I've read all of your work and like you do this with your, you know, speech cadences and your writing patterns and things. And this whole time you're kind of like thinking that, yes, obviously Sasha Baron Cohen's character is intelligent, but you also do feel kind of like he's just this wild, you know, wild card that's it's uncontrollable and then you see him do his testimony on the stand and it's just so coherently put together and you're like wow like this is amazing like it's it's a total kind of like 180 from the perception that you had of that character early on so well um, that, i mean that 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 whole 180 comes to me in the scene that you the previous scene you were talking about when you know the Tom Hayden and Abby Hoffman character are, you know, having their discussion because you do sit there and you, you throughout the whole movie, the two characters are just, you know, at each other's uh, neck. Like they're mm-hmm. just yelling at each other and, and can't see eye to eye on anything. But then for Abby Hoffman to be like, I, yeah, I read all your stuff. I think you're, you're brilliant. I think you're a great writer. You just have problems with the way that you write. <laughs> like it just, the, like the, idea that how much respect is had between the two characters in actuality made me feel better about the whole thing oh yeah no absolutely and and there's even a scene pretty early on in the movie that foreshadows it because uh, someone said i think it's when they're in the in the first like day of the trial and they go into the like recess room or whatever and they're like fighting or all that stuff and then 
everyone else, I think it was maybe Wineglass uh, was the other detective or the other uh, lawyer that uh, when he's leaving Tom Hayden's character, Tom Hayden is still there and he's like, you know, you need to give him some credit. Like Abby's smarter than you think. And, you know, there's that little exchange. So there is some foreshadowing of it, uh, which is also just very, very well done. Yeah, no, I think, I think there's so much that's well done with this and the performances. So is there anything in particular that you didn't care for in this movie? What you mean besides all the disgusting, horrible, like still relevant things? Um, I mean that that's that's content. Like that's yeah, that you're yeah, supposed yeah. to make those things. I'm talking about like, is there anything that when making this movie, or you know, that you just thought, ooh, that wasn't a good decision, or something like that? Honestly, no. I I was pretty blown away by this, and it you know it's weird because it's based on a true story, but at the same time, you know, it is still heavily relevant, which is terrifying because this is back in the sixties. Um, but, and, and, you know, I, I dare even saying it this way, but like, it just felt really refreshing to see a movie that, you know, captures the spirit of, of kind of what we should strive to be, you know, and that we should strive to be better and that we should put other people before ourselves, you know, like when you get to the end of it and, um, Tom Hayden's character is asked to make a last statement and he starts reading off the 4,750, you know, soldiers that have died in the Vietnam war while the trial has been going on and he starts reading their names and, you know, throughout the, the whole course of this movie, like they're they're talking consistently about how, you know, this is why they're there. Like, this is the important thing about making people understand that people are out there dying and losing their lives and, you know, things like that. So, um, you know, yeah, I, I, there's not really anything in here that I saw that I was like, oh, that, that was a weird choice or why did they do that? Like this is probably a movie that it, for the first time in a good while that I, I've literally just been completely drawn into it and was a very, you know, strong audience member, as opposed to kind of like actively dissecting the, you know, production side of it. And, uh, I feel like anytime you can accomplish that, you have a really good movie. You know, if you can get people out of their heads and just focus on, on your, on your film, I feel like that's an achievement in and of itself. And so, no, like I, I really don't. Um, I think all the casting choices were wonderful. Um, you know, the performances, the cinematography, like it's a, it's a beautifully shot movie, you know, uh, it looks great. Um, production design seemed really nice too, is which is difficult because it's a period piece. Um, nothing jumped out at me that was like, Oh, that was hugely flawed or, you know, so, you know, I, yeah, uh, short story made long there. No, no, there was nothing in there that I, uh, I know. What about you? Was it like, were, was there any questions that you were, you I know, mean, questionable decisions? No, uh, I, I would say maybe one questionable decision that I would have. And, and, and I guess you can kind of chalk it up to the fact that it's, it's a period or it's not a period, but a, uh, dramatic retelling of history. Mm-hmm. There's no, real female characters in the whole movie like there's i mean i think the biggest female character is the agent mm-hmm. that uh kind of is the honeypot uh you know scheme for 
the Ruben character. Um, mm-hmm. He, other than that, there's no female characters in this, and it's that's kind of sad. Like I feel like, even though there might not have been anything that made the headlines that you could have used, it's still a uh, fictionalization of dramatic events. He could have had a character in there. Like we know from the West Wing that he can write female characters and sports night and all that stuff. So why not have, have one in here? Yeah, no, I mean, and I mean, yeah, now that you point that out, that's very true. And again, I, I don't know. I don't have a strong answer to, to that, you know, the, you're right. The undercover agent, um, I mean, I think her performance is great as well. Uh, you're right. We don't really get that much of her. But yeah, no, that's that is a good I would say that's a good observation. Yeah. So that's really that's the only thing I had wrong with it. I mean, I'm sure there are plenty of other things that are wrong with it. I'm sure there's a lot of historical inaccuracies that are in there, but I don't know them. I watched the movie for what it was, what it was and enjoyed the hell out of it. And the other thing is, is it's a movie. Yeah, it's not a documentary like it doesn't need to be 100 percent realistic like it definitely needs to, you know, deliver its theme, which I think it does quite well. Um, And of course, anytime you have something that's based on a true story, there are going to be some, you know, creative liberties that are taken uh, taken, you know, you you most likely need to in a lot of instances to make it a, a, a film, you know. Yeah, exactly. All right. Uh, if you had an opinion on this movie that differed from ours or just want to also, you know, shower the praises of this movie, we'd love to hear it. So find me on Twitter. I am at Mitchipedia, G-E-M. G-E-M stands for Geek Elite Media. Richard, where can people find you online? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter as well, at Rycohen, R-I-C-O-W-N, or you can find me on twitch.tv slash Rycohen and the number one. The rest of Geek Elite Media is at Geek Elite Media on Twitter, at Geek Elite Media on Instagram, and Facebook.com forward slash Geek Elite Media is our Facebook page. Check out our website, geekleetmedia.com, for archived episodes of this podcast and other podcasts on our network. And as Richard mentioned earlier, we have a Patreon site. Go check it out. Be one of our patrons. There's lots of bonus material that you can get only if you're one of our patrons. So if you don't get enough of us in my voice already, there's more there. <laughs> And whatever podcatcher you use to listen to us, please rate and review us so it helps spread the word of our network uh, and others can also enjoy it. But until next time, this is the Mitch and Rich Show on the Geek Elite Media Network saying always remember to geek out. out. This concludes our broadcast. 